content warning. This episode contains discussions of suicide. You're listening to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this is the second episode in our series on adoptee suicide awareness, dedicated to a special member of the community who died by suicide last year. We know this can be a tough subject to talk about, but it's important that we do talk about it openly. As part of this series, we wanted to talk to a therapist, so we approached Nicole Shepard, a Korean adoptee and licensed professional clinical counsellor from the Twin Cities, Minnesota. In addition to her clinical practice, Nicole's been working on a Korean adoptee mental health and suicide research project, which was created in response to unaddressed suicide issues within the Korean adoptee community. The project has worked to identify risk factors, raise awareness, increase community support and resources, and reduce the number of deaths through prevention. Nicole gave a presentation about this project for the opening keynote address at the 2018 Khan Conference, which we watched on YouTube. You can watch it too. We'll provide the link on our socials. Nicole has been literally preparing for this work for decades. Nicole was adopted to Minneapolis in 1978 at six months old and grew up with her older brother, who was also adopted from Korea. Korean culture camps played a formative role in Nicole's life from kindergarten age when she attended with her adoptive family through to high school when she decided to go on her own. Nicole said, quote, it was so meaningful to me to have a place where I felt like I belonged. At these overnight culture camps for high schoolers, Nicole first started to have deep and meaningful late night conversations with other adoptees. Conversations about some of the challenges and difficulties that they faced, such as racism and trying to date, about having a sense of deep sadness or longing, or feeling like they didn't belong. It was also at that time when Nicole started hearing about people attempting suicide, including her older brother. During college, Nicole returned as a camp counselor. Through further conversations, she realized that, quote, wow, it's not just a positive thing to be adopted. There's complexity and there's grief. And there's a lot of difficult emotion that we're not really taught how to deal with. Through this camp work, Nicole learned the importance of community, connection, and validation for a whole range of experiences, both happy and painful. During her undergrad studies, Nicole did a study abroad program in Korea. During that year, she was able to find her birth family and meet some of the founders of Goal. After college, Nicole moved to LA to intern with a Korean American organization and on a personal level to explore her place within a larger Korean and Asian American context. But during this time, she kept thinking about Korea and her birth family. So in 2002, Nicole moved to Korea with the initial plan of staying for one or two years, but ultimately lived there until 2010. During her time in Korea, she was actively involved in adoptee community development and advocacy and served as the Vice Secretary General of Goal for six years. Reflecting on her time at Goal, Nicole recalls community events with large groups of adoptees, lots of drinking, and all sorts of emotions. She said, quote, sometimes at Goal, we were very unprepared and unable to meet more of the severe sort of mental health categorized needs. We didn't really have the training to know how to provide that level of support. I think that we always did the best that we could, but we weren't equipped to deal with the grief and loss that sometimes adoptees were experiencing, or the birth families who also came to the office needing therapy. Nicole's experiences in Korea led her to reflect on how she could continue to serve the adoptee community, and she ultimately decided to train as a therapist. After returning to the U.S., Nicole obtained her master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of St. Thomas. 
She's also a graduate of the Permanency and Adoption Competency Certificate, PACC, training at the University of Minnesota, and training for adoption competency designed by the Center for Adoption Support and Education, or CASE. As a clinician, Nicole specializes in mindfulness and dialectical behavioral therapy for adolescents and adults. Her wealth of experience engaging in and supporting the adoptee community in a variety of roles enriches and informs her current work. Now, before we get into this episode, we have to tell you two things. Firstly, this is a long ass episode. This is because we not only talk about suicide, but about adoptee mental health in general. And we think there are a few gems in here, so we decided to keep it all in. Our conversation with Nicole covers a lot of ground, including the following. Common risk factors for adoptee suicide, as identified by Nicole's research project. How we can look out for each other within the adoptee community and talk about suicide in helpful ways. How our adoptee experiences can sometimes be diagnosed as just regular mental health stuff in therapy by therapists who may lack adoptee-specific knowledge and experience. The importance of learning to identify our own feelings, set boundaries, and advocate for ourselves. And finally, how safe, inclusive community spaces and vulnerability can be a pathway to connection and healing. Finally, we apologize for some dips in audio quality throughout this episode. We met on Zoom and experienced intermittent connectivity issues. So I might focus on the study that you presented on for the con keynote. Um, if that's okay with you. So thank you so much for, for that. And, and I'm so happy that it was available on YouTube and we're, we're going to link, mm-hmm. um, we're going to link to it on, on our social media and everything like that. Cause it was really amazing. Um, I really appreciated the point you made that adopted Koreans are generally highly educated and sort of high functioning in scare quotes um, and how that can contribute to adoption being viewed yeah. as very successful and how that mm-hmm. kind of the perceived successfulness of adoption can also contribute to concealing what might be happening for a lot of adoptees in terms of mental health, yeah. um, sense of belonging, like you mentioned earlier, or even um, difficulties with attachment. If, if okay, I'd like to focus on some of the risk factors that you identified in that keynote. So I was wondering if we might sort of go through those briefly Yeah, we had five listed in that presentation that you're referring to, um, and I'll just list them and then I'll talk a little bit more about them. So the risk factors being a history of mental health or prior mental health, knows another Korean adoptee who's attempted suicide, non-binary gender status, has been to Korea, and has a sibling that's adopted from Korea. So I do want to be mindful that these are not necessarily factors that if they are, you know, part of our experience that directly mean that we're going to attempt suicide. But just based on the data of the 300 and how many, 368 people who responded, um, these are just some of the stats that we noticed. And I'll talk a little bit more about maybe some limitations that would influence the numbers in the data. Um, So history of mental health, I'll start with the first one. 
Um, this is already a known risk factor for anybody who has a higher potential to attempt suicide. Um, so I think that's not new. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to add for adoptees, not just Korean adoptees, but adoptees and tend to have like a higher rate or higher percentage of um, diagnosable uh, mental health disorders like depression or anxiety or something else, in part um, just because our experience of being adopted is rooted in loss and, and change. And for us as transracial international adoptees, um, our transition or move to a new family also resulted in moving to another country, a different culture, different food, things that are quite different from what our sort of biological experiences um, had been used to. The next factor about knowing another Korean adoptee who's attempted suicide, um, again, this seems to relate pretty similarly to uh, known risk factors that if you know somebody, a friend or relative who's attempted suicide or died by suicide, for anybody in the general population, this is a risk factor um, because suicide can also have sort of a contagion effect. So because adoptees tend to have um, a higher probability of a diagnosable disorder like depression, it also makes sense that if we know somebody who has attempted or died by suicide, that might also affect us as well. The next respecter of non-binary gender status, um, at the time when we did this, we really had relatively few people who in the questionnaire responded as identifying as non-binary. Um, and so of that small, small, small percentage, um, they must have reported um, other items on depression and past suicide attempts. I do have a little bit of clinical experience um, just working with non-binary gender status as well as like um, LGBTQ transgender clients. And um, partly because of that sort of on uh, the periphery status, um, there's a higher percentage of trauma, um, bullying, and other types of things that also then happen in our life, which contribute to mental health, which then can affect the propensity to um, think about something like suicide. So I'm just going to guess that that's what that is. But we really, I do want to say we really didn't have a lot of data to have a lot of conclusiveness. Um, but I do believe that is available in the research uh, on depression rates and suicide rates in general. The next risk factor of having been to Korea as something that would cause us to have a higher rate of you know, attempted suicide or suicidal behaviors. What we did not ask in the survey uh, was, so we asked people, had they been to Korea? I'm not sure, and I don't think we asked them how many times they had been to Korea. I can't remember if we asked them if they lived in Korea or not. But my general thought in discussing this with the other um, investigators was, that going to Korea, especially if you've been just one time, maybe two times, maybe spent a short amount of time in Korea, is that 
there's a lot of emotional and psychological upheaval that come with opening that Pandora's box. And I think we all have different levels of how we come to process that experience. And if we've only gotten so far and are sort of um, processing or reflecting on what just happened, you know, especially with that first trip. My guess is that this may be more related to a higher number of um, respondents reflecting on that really tumultuous sort of experience and having been maybe once or twice and not processed through it sort of enough to kind of, I don't know, get to the other side of that. Does that make sense? Mm, I know absolutely. This was like, okay. I know this was the question that was asked at the conference and, you know, I was like, well, this isn't to scare you to not go to Korea. Does it mean, you know, if you go on a birth family tour, if you go visit your birth land that, you know, it's going to make you want to like commit suicide or kill yourself. It's just, I think it's such a big decision for anybody to make and then to actually do it. And if you don't have, you know, people that, are part of that process with you, sorting through all of the thoughts, the emotions that come up, and even knowing how to do that or who to talk to. It's 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 quite a lot. So that was sort of my thoughts. So like if we were to ask that question in the future, it would be a little bit more about how many times have you been? How have you kind of processed through what that experience was like? Have you made any resolutions? Have you um, made any conclusions about that? You know, kind of what, how do you feel about like Korea, birth family, any of those things? And then lastly, this has a sibling that was adopted from Korea. I think the best that we could try to make sense out of that was if that sibling also fell into a category of attempted suicide and as an adoptee, because of our experiences, having um, a higher probability of having depression or anxiety or both or other diagnoses at some time or another, that if those correlated, that that might make sense. We didn't really have a lot more information to pull from that. And I think you guys may have noticed in the protective factors or possibly protective factors. Um, there was also one that said had a sibling that was the biological child of the adoptive parents. And we couldn't really quite make sense out of why that would be. So I don't have an answer for that <laughs> as unsatisfying as, as that is. But we, we, we gather that maybe if there was some mental health issues or developmental issues, I know sort of anecdotally talking to other adoptees over the years, oftentimes our siblings that are adopted from Korea are not necessarily our biological sibling. And I don't think we asked if the sibling adopted from Korea was the biological sibling. So it could be something as, I guess, simple as in psychology, there's a sort of goodness of fit term. Do you guys know that term? Yeah. Ish, sort of. Okay. <laughs> so goodness yeah. of fit kind of refers generally more to the sort of personality temperament of uh, like the parent or the 
mom, and then the child. And so if they're similar, their ability to like respond to each other's like cues and communication um, goes fairly well, especially from that infant age. But if the innate sort of temperament and personality are quite different and the parent has low awareness about this, then sometimes um, it just feels more like colicky or struggle or um, there's just more of a struggle because they don't necessarily respond in this very harmonious way. Um, And so, I don't know, I guess I can reflect on my own experience with um, my brother who's adopted from Korea. Um, Just, we had very different sort of temperaments and very different personalities. And I think what I know now is, you know, there's probably some other sort of undiagnosed things that kind of happened that weren't ever in his file. And so, you know, sometimes some siblings get along really well, but I've also talked to other adoptees who, you know, have very different levels of curiosity about Korea and, you know, different ways of dealing. And there can be some really stark um, differences in what that looks like in the family that they grow up. If that sort of goodness of fit between even siblings is quite off, I mean, that could be another explanation. And to add sort of one other layer on it, I know in mental health, when we look at families and we'll just say there's a child out of two or three siblings that has a significant enough disorder diagnosis where it's like disruptive in the family. Oftentimes what happens is like the family, the parents, resources and attention kind of have to go to that more high needs child. And so there can be other resentments and things that kind of get built up when the other child or the other children, you know, like can generally do more on their own and perform better. Does that make sense? So if there's that kind of conflict, um, you know, that, that, that might be part of what that is, but I don't know more to give you a conclusive answer. On the topic of gender, um, Nicole, I was interested if you could also speak to why um, more women, adoptee women report Um, having attempted suicide than adopting men. And I believe I've seen that also in other studies. So for our survey and parts of it, we focused primarily on the Minnesota like respondents. Um, I can just kind of speak that there was just a lot more women that responded to the results or to the survey. So out of the 368 respondents, 120 identified as having grown up in Minnesota. And out of that 120, I believe like 100 or more were women and 20 or less were men. So I think part of that is just who was interested in the subject, who was willing to talk about it. I can't quite say or would say that that the women have a higher percentage of the diagnosis, like of depression. Um, I think women are just more willing to reach out and say something. I will say this, which I I wasn't aware of until we were doing the survey. Um, Up until about the early 1980s or late 1970s, majority of the children going abroad were girls. 
from Korea, but it switched in late 1980s where it's been primarily boys. And I didn't have that knowledge that that that, that was a thing and that that had happened so early. So one thing that I've noticed here at some of the culture camps in Minnesota is um, as the numbers are going down, but majority of the campers are boys because just the numbers shifted. Whereas when I was in elementary, middle, high school, I think the girls outnumbered the boys either like three to one or four to one. So it would be really interesting if we had a larger male sample and we could see, you know, how they rated on that because we just don't have that information. My understanding was that in the, uh, like in the suicide statistics generally that, um, that men are definitely more at risk of suicide than women. Is that right? So in general statistics, the rate is relatively similar across, you know, the two genders. However, um, death by suicide with more lethal means is much higher in men because men are more likely to attempt with like a gun and women are more likely to attempt with um, like an overdose, something less lethal. And so the completed, so the attempt rates in the general population are, are, are fairly similar, but I think men, the rate of death is higher because they choose more lethal means, which have less chance of it being unsuccessful. Right. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and just one more question about those risk factors. Um, so if I try to like dig up knowledge from my psychology study days, um, mm-hmm. they're all correlations, right? So is that, is that correct? So it's like, um, yeah, in, in some cases it would require further research to, um, to perhaps identify the, uh, the cause, the, the more precise causes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of research out in the public about, general risk factors, right? And what we were wanting to do with this is to look and try to figure out a little bit more specific amongst the adoptee population, what are the other things that contribute to the mental health suffering that would then lead to those suicidal um, behaviors or attempts? Also ask, this is perhaps going on a bit of a tangent, but you also mentioned in that keynote presentation that adoptees may like often present with issues that look like mental health issues, but Mm -hmm. may be more related to, um, to generally being disconnected and not knowing what to do with our feelings um, Mm -hmm. and unresolved loss and grief perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more. I think that was, I mean, I think that was definitely the case for me personally um, throughout my 20s. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it is one of the big things that also interested me in this area and also kind of the work that I do now more clinically is to have a better understanding of sort of those quote normal diagnoses under depression, anxiety, 
um, post-traumatic stress disorder, personality disorders, or other bigger things. But because I am an adoptee, because I grew up in an adoptee community, because in my young, um, like late teen years in adulthood, really sought out experiences and to know more about other adoptees' experiences, especially in returning to Korea, undertaking birth family search, being in that process, finding family, not finding family, um, and sort of everything in between. What I've come to know, and, and I think you've probably talked about these things in a lot of your other episodes on the podcast, is that early work was really about community building. And so for adoptees, many of us, and, you know, if you listen to lots of um, documentaries and you read adoptee memoirs and you read the poetry and the anthologies, um, we'll talk about this theme of, uh, again, sort of not having a a place to belong or not knowing what that is or what that looks like. So the community building is really creating and or sort of joining in and finding spaces that are validating to be with people who can say, I know what that's like. Because, you know, we live in a day and age where we can have these intersecting identities of being Korean, of being adopted, of being an Australian or a German or American we're not these separate pieces, like the intersecting part that we have vocabulary for finally is that we are all of these things. And I think in the early days, when I look back to like my teen years, even um, the function of camp about identity, 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 who am I? Am I Korean? Am I American? Like we didn't, and of course we're adopted, but we weren't even talking about like how, how all of those things come together. And we can't just live in this understandable way, only being like a part of those things. And if you layer on top of that, you know, our gender status or, you know, like our family status, if we're, we have, you know, even just like divorced parents or we have two parents of the same sex, or if, you know, we're adopted, but our family's actually Korean, but we grow up in the U.S. So really being able to meet our people, (laughs) I think is, is part of that, like growing up very separated from people who are like us, um, and really not having elders to show us the way, right? I think I heard in your podcast, um, you had mentioned Well, we have some American elders, you know, older Korean American adoptee elders that we can kind of look to. Um, But, you know, when I was younger, and especially in high school, you know, I had friends that were from Black community um, and Native American community here in Minnesota. And I couldn't really put words to what I saw, you know, even though in some ways as a quote minority, they suffered in some ways that I did um, because of uh, racism or not being in that dominant culture. But even if they were economically, you know, poor, 
I felt like they had a belonging and they had their people or they had their tribe. And um, it wasn't until I was older and I was in Korea um, where I realized like, wow, this, this is, this is what I've been doing um, is we didn't have our tribe. I mean, we were all kind of out there. And in some ways, like if you grow up in a community like I did, where your parents recognize the importance of being around people that are like you. Um, but even then, those attempts are somewhat limited because they're not really joining into the experience with us when we're being sent away to camp somewhere in the woods, you know, for this private tribal experience. But there's something right about what they were doing, which is at least recognizing that there's a reason why having counselors that are older Korean Americans is important because they can hopefully teach us something that our white parents can't. Part of it is, I think, that having that in our consciousness or realizing that we need to find people that are like us. And luckily for us as Korean adoptees, there's a lot of us. So we, we can do that. And because of the internet and social media, we do it in this really spastic way. Like you just go to Google and you type in Korean adoptees and you can get connected. And I think from a therapist's point of view, who doesn't quite know um, about transracial adoption, transracial international adoption or racism um, or not belonging, um, it kind of goes back to that day of social workers pushing, well, just love them. Love is enough. Well, we know that love is not enough because we live in racialized societies, you know, or there's a caste system or there's something that puts us in a position of, you know, in most cases, less than. So we need to be able to talk to somebody or a group of people where we don't have to explain who we are first. Right? You just say I'm adapting. They're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's why, yeah, I get it. Another thing is because of our displaced experience, many of us do not know that there are some common things that adoptees experience because we're adopted. Right? Um, as I mentioned, you know, like as a therapist, and I won't sh share a whole lot, but I do have a client that I recently realized <laughs> was adopted. And this person is transracially adopted, not internationally adopted. And I was like, why didn't I know this? I mean, these are the questions that I, I usually ask and I know about. And I can put some context into certain behaviors, like a kind of meekness or sort of like a core sense of not deserving um, or not being able to advocate and being able. So, so somebody who doesn't know certain, I'd say behavioral traits that might be more common in adoptees would just say, Oh, it's just anxiety. It mm -hmm. is anxiety, but it's also, it is helpful to know. And especially if we're looking at it from a trauma lens, that there's a reason or there is at least a partial reason why some of these behaviors are out there. The next piece is like just having some general psychoeducation about some of the behaviors that are more common in adoptees because of our experience of adoption. 
you guys had talked about it in a previous podcast, the seven core issues in adoption. So even knowing those categories about how loss, how rejection, guilt and shame, grief, um, how our own sense of who we are, our own identity, and how this leads into our ability to be intimate in relationships, as well as the things that we do in our life to try to like maintain control. If you don't know these things as common to sort of the adoption experience, you just can label them very simply as depression or anxiety. And from a diagnosing position, we're we're taught just to hear about someone's experience and say, well, based on what you described, you fit under this category. But it's only a best guess. And it is important. um, And this is part of why I do what I do clinically is to also have a greater sense of what brought this person to this place right? If we don't have any history to explain any of it other than, you know, maybe some inherent sort of biological thing, like maybe they notice anxiety runs in their family, but if they haven't had other disruptions or traumas, um, then it's easier to work with them in that more sort of pure, like clinical way. But knowing about an adoptee's experience about early loss about separation, knowing what age they were adopted, did they have conscious memory um, when that happened, you know, also affects then how we're able to process and kind of deal with other changes, other things that come up, other things that sort of affect us that, again, can clinically look more just like depression, anxiety, would be um, our displacement and not really knowing anything of our own history. So I kind of wrote this down as for us as Korean adoptees, really having very limited, if any, knowledge about Korean history to put any context about where we're from. I myself um, accidentally sort of skipped over world history. So not only did I have sort of a very limited Korean history, but I didn't even have like a broader world history to give me context about World War One and World War Two and the Korean War and everything. Um, and then here in the U.S., I mean, back when I was in middle school, high school, even college, the American view on Korean War and war in Vietnam, very, very different than when I was in college and studied the same topics in Korea, granted with also very Korean nationalistic viewpoint. Um, but really, really different to hear about the history from the other side's point of view. Um, and then kind of layer on top of that our own sort of adoptive country's narrative of who we are, right? The next piece, too, is then we also lack, for, the most, for most of us anyways, our own personal family history to put context on our specific adoption our specific how did we come to be in the world um this is something i found out and you guys i don't know if you know this but when i was working in korea in goal and although birth family search wasn't my main role um i did there was a story back in 2008 about a little girl adopted by a dutch couple who were living in hong kong at the time and um 
they were diplomats, but the girl was adopted through a private adoption. And so, and I, what I found out in sort of investigating on the case was because the couple were living abroad when they did the adoption, um, then the home study and normal process that they would have to go through had they been in the Netherlands, they weren't able to do it. And as a diplomat, they were able to kind of circumvent a number of um, sort of policies and essentially not have to adopt under the Hague Convention. But what happened is after two, three years, they decided that the girl wasn't fitting into their family. And so they were giving her up. But she was suddenly stateless because they never processed her paperwork to become a Dutch citizen. I think she was like no longer technically Korean. And then they were living in Hong Kong, but she wasn't a citizen in Hong Kong. And through that process, one of the things that I kind of found out in talking to the different adoption agencies in Korea was depending on what country you went to, and in the U.S. with the early laws and adoption, the way the laws were written or the way that Korea interpreted the U.S. law was that only an orphan is eligible for adoption. So for a lot of the cases, and especially probably for Holt, this is at least, if not part of the reason why it says, you know, the adoptee, the adoptee is an orphan, they don't have family, and helps explain why sometimes when adoptees come back, there's like another file with the real information. In order to be eligible for adoption, um, they had to be an orphan. Um, but other countries in Europe, because I found and met a lot of adoptees from Europe who had their actual birth family information, had information about surviving parents and or siblings. And so when they got to that point of um, possibly wanting to return to Korean family, they were able to do it like very easily and very quickly. So this, this part is also just that not knowing, not knowing our personal history not having a context about it. And so what do we do instead? We either use the information that's in our file, which some of us find out is not true, or we come up with some kind of fantasy, right? Like we're a princess or like we're, you know, the heir of some wealthy, like treacherous family. Um, but we come up with, uh, you know, something to fill in in, in that space. And then if you get to a certain age where you start actually searching or you watch a documentary and you see someone else's search, you realize, oh my goodness, like what I know about myself may not be true at all. So I think that anybody would do that if we just have to make up a story, right? And that could also look like some other kind of mental health stuff. It could even look delusional, but I think it's not uncommon for adoptees to have to fill in the blanks. If we're not taught to self-advocate or we're not taught to have our own self-agency, um, which means, for example, being given permission to have our own feelings about an experience, 
or on some subconscious or unconscious level, you know, having fears or worries that if I express to my adoptive family how I really feel, I might lose them. And I think, Ryan, you had said this in the podcast I listened to is, as adoptees, do we need to get to a place, or maybe both of you guys talked about this, um, of acceptance about how adoption has, I guess, affected our experience and who we are? And I think it was a little bit more about this question of, because of that history, because of that experience, that that leaves some kind of um, like scar or it affects how we come to be in the world. And sometimes in therapy, we'll talk about that as like kind of healing. But I like this, this kind of word around acceptance because I think a lot of times adoptees in terms of identity formation and other kind of mental health things we suffer or can suffer from is the sense of, I just want to feel better. And if only I did this or that, or I took a medicine or um, things were different, I wouldn't feel this way. So um, learning how to accept our story is a process that we can get to. I mean, some people do it early and some people, you know, don't question it. Um, I've tended to notice when I met a adoptees that were adopted older at an older age who actually had conscious memory and kind of moved from a really like impoverished um, situation and then went into maybe a more loving family where they had a home and they had food and all of their basic needs were met plus caring and love like you know those adoptees tend to say things like I'm grateful and I you know adoption saved my life but I also realized they have the ability to say that because they have conscious memory of another version where for other adoptees um, like myself, when you don't have any verbal or conscious memory of that because of the infancy, the positive is you don't have that. So you don't remember it in ways that make you sad, but our bodies can also remember that there's a shift and something happened and there is a loss. And that also makes it very confusing when later on in life, maybe that gets triggered because we can't really put our finger on it. So getting into this place, if we haven't been taught by our families that it's okay to have our feelings and that we can also set the boundaries that we need to, especially emotionally, but also physically, But it can get tricky with our families um, if our families haven't also kind of done their own work or if they're not that aware. So so part of that struggle, um, and especially as it pertains to relationship stuff, is, you know, some of those early experiences um, that have or have not been modeled to us that our experiences, our feelings have to be explained you know, we're responsible for them, but we don't have to also justify them. These are kind of the things as a therapist who doesn't know anything about adoption and how that affects us that can just look like, well, it's just depression. And if, if that's what it is, we're going to work on changing your thoughts from a purely like a cognitive behavioral um, perspective. And I think that's not enough for adoptees because 
our thoughts are, you know, generally based on our lived experiences. It's not that there's something wrong with our thoughts. It's that our lived experiences don't necessarily match up with maybe some of the messages we're being taught um, about how to be an American or how to be an Australian. To summarize again, I guess, being able to be in spaces that are validating um, people that can you know, somewhat understand our experience, um, getting some psychoeducation about things that are common to adoptees so that we don't feel strange that, you know, this fear of rejection or abandonment, they're not just like fears that we just make up. Melanie Chung Sherman, who's a therapist, do you guys know her? She's a Korean adoptee and therapist in Texas. And one time she had put up a quote and it was about this fear of abandonment. And she said, adoptees have this because we've actually <laughs> lived through that. It's not just something we make up. And so to be able to hear that it makes sense that we would get anxious or we would fear something happening. We can learn to understand that in the context of today and in certain relationships, if that's not a pattern, that's not a history um, in the present, you know, a specific relationship. But we also need space to help us validate that I feel this way or my body feels anxious or nervous because I actually went through it. And for those of us that were adopted at a pre-verbal, like a very young age, when we didn't have words to place on our experience, we just might viscerally feel it. Our job isn't to try to make the feeling go away. It's just learning that it makes sense that we feel this way because at one point we were alone or we didn't know how to communicate and we didn't get what we needed because our mom wasn't there anymore or because you know the the mom or whoever stepped in the foster mother or later our parents they just didn't smell right they didn't feel right and as a as a baby like you you don't you can't explain that yet so I think kind of having a greater understanding about a lot of these experiences that come from our adoption experience, knowing how to treat it, not just with sort of run-of-the-mill, like depression, anxiety, therapies can be really helpful. Since we we actually yeah have lived through um, abandonment, and so these are uh, real fears that um, we may be experiencing from time to time. Um, you said our job isn't to make make those feelings and fears go away, but to is this right to gain like a contextual understanding of them and basically to, to manage them. Yeah. Um, I think the intellectual part and the part that we as adoptees who are generally, and I don't want to say everyone, but generally like educated, we can kind of understand and wrap our head around the concept. But I think the more processing or the therapy work is being able to sit with that discomfort and the feelings. Mm -hmm. I think in westernized societies, we're, we're taught to be happy 
and we're taught to see the bright side and our families and society around us in general, you know, don't want to hear about what's hard <laughs> or what feels, you know, terrible. Um, and I mean, it just on a broader level, I mean, I think that can contribute to all of our experiences of depression and anxiety because we feel like we're not supposed to have certain feelings or that certain close people in our lives can't necessarily understand them or be comfortable with them. And kind of based on all my years living in Korea, the main observation <laughs> that I had uh, when adoptees were sort of trying to manage all of those feelings. And this is very uh, kind of gender stereotyped, but generally in a very broad swoop, it was like most men just drank and drank away and or womanized their way <laughs> to Korea. And then the women, again, this is a broad stereotype because, you know, kind of went both ways. But the women would be like, we're going to be activists and we're going to like, you know, lead and we're going to create programs and we're going to lobby and we're going to write and, you know, we're going to make change and we're going to stand up to Korea. And, and, and it was just kind of interesting to see the ways that we, in a very, again, stereotyped, broad swoop kind of dealt with all of that really hard stuff. And uh, yes, we, you know, if we take away the alcohol and we take away the risky behaviors, we take away the advocacy, a lot of it is how do we deal with these really hard feelings? What do we do with them? And I think we don't know what to do with them. Nobody tells us like at camp when I was little, like, oh yeah, of course you're going to be sad. Because, you know, sometimes you miss your mom. I mean, these are things I've learned later in life, right? Or as a clinician or in training as an, you know, adoption competent therapist. But I knew it and I felt it when I, you know, was working in Korea. It was what motivated me to be part of global community development is seeing a lot of suffering, a lot of grief, a lot of anxiety, and wanting to help, you know, but that also kind of comes down to, like you said, Hannah, like, how do we learn to manage this, right? We can't wish it away, just like we can't wish that, I wish I wasn't adopted. I mean, I don't know, I think every adoptee at some point wishes that in their life. If only I wasn't adopted, I wouldn't be different, or I wouldn't be wondering why I don't feel like I fit in, or I wouldn't be wondering about, you know, what is it like in Korea, or who are my birth family? And I think there is a big piece where we get to this place where it's like, we accept what is, and it's hard to do, to do that when we don't have answers about Korea, about culture, about birth families. Um, I was always a big question I had for a lot of adoptees who seem to be at peace or at peace enough to feel like I don't need to go to Korea or I'm not interested in looking for my family. To go back to your question, I do think it is we, we the healing part or the growing part or the 
sort of getting okay is being able to accept that our adoption is a huge part of our life. It does impact us in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be like this life sentence, death sentence. I mean, and I don't think everyone actually feels it in the, in that way. Um, and obviously as a therapist, like my lens is a little bit been more about, you know, people that are having a hard time, at least at times. But I do think it is, how do we manage? How do we accept? And then for me, it's more about how do we not just cope? How do we get to that place where we can kind of grow from the experience? I was wondering, you mentioned that um, in your clinical practice and probably through your life experience and and meeting adoptees, um, you mentioned that you've observed like um, a kind of meekness that perhaps comes from a place of of feeling not deserving and and a tendency to not advocate um, for, for oneself. And I was just kind of curious about how you might work with that um, therapeutically, like how you might um, try to develop a sense of self-advocacy or self-agency in an adopted person. For a little context around that, uh, since I grew up here in Minnesota and might be part of that sort of dominant Scandinavian cultural piece, uh, very interesting to do global work to meet adoptees from Scandinavia and then to also go to Scandinavia and see some of those similarities about how our cultures, our adoptive families, cultures um, have influenced us in very similar ways. Um, So part of that might be that cultural piece of sort of passive aggressiveness. And uh, when I was in Korea, a Danish adoptee told me I had to look up this term called Yante Law. Have you guys ever heard of that? No. <laughs> and uh, he, he suggested that if I under, if I read a little bit about it, I would understand why Scandinavians think and feel and behave the ways they do. Um, so it's Yante with a J. <laughs> mm-hmm. A whole set of kind of rules about how to behave and how to act in society, um, including things like you're not better than anybody else. <laughs> and, you know, kind of things about like, uh, don't brag. And um, I think what the saying is something like the nail that sticks up gets hammered back down. <laughs> oh my God. Um, oh, like a, a tall poppy kind of thing. I think that's what we would call it in Australia. Okay. Cutting down so, the tall poppies. <laughs> yeah. And so if you're an adoptee from New York... <laughs> Right. And you come from a family that's like fairly well off and well educated and you're from the East Coast, like you learn to be very like assertive and outgoing and you know not really question um, your uh, right to things. <laughs> but I did realize that growing up in, in Minnesota, you know, we have more of this sort of Scandinavian influence, most of us, which is sort of also a kind of humbleness. And also, like, a questioning about, like, do I have a right to say how I really feel? (laughs) So 
maybe not just as an adoptees, although I think it's a common theme in adoptees no matter where we go because of these core issues in adoption and about our own family's readiness to be able to talk openly about how we really not just the happy stuff. So kind of the question about how I clinically would work with that is to do some training in um, first helping adoptees be able to identify how they're feeling and to put accurate like labels on those emotions and then learn how to do that in this non-judgmental way where they don't have to explain or justify why they feel what they feel by first being able to do that. And I think that is in general, a lot of what we do in therapy. I in particular do a lot of mindfulness and then dialectical behavioral therapy, which has specific skills that we can teach um, to do this process. But I realized um, in this research, in this questionnaire we've put out, and then also at the end of my schooling a few years ago, I had this grant to do a mindfulness-based adult adoptee group. And that was something I learned in leading that group was we don't know how to identify what we feel because instead of just noticing it and saying what it is many adoptees most of us we jump to having to explain why we feel we feel or explain it away or say why it doesn't matter and then what happens is we go to this other feeling which might come up about us judging that initial feeling Um, So I found that is really basic foundational work is first being able to be more accurate and aware of what are the things that we experience. Once like an adoptee or client gets better at doing that and also realizing they don't have to apologize for their feeling, they don't have to explain it, they don't have to justify it. um, We can work more on how to then be more assertive in expressing, and that just might be sharing what they're feeling, but kind of building on that, it's more than not just expressing how I'm feeling, but what do I want? What do I need? Being able to learn that it's okay, not only is it okay, but in order for us to grow or kind of get our needs met, we also have to start doing things to set or create boundaries or to ask for our wants and our needs to be met. Um, And I think just our adoption experience in general can teach us that when we were young, we didn't have an ability to say those things. Um, Or even if we could, um, circumstances were such that those needs could not be met. And so I think it can be a difficult process to do later in life that we're not always aware of or conscious that this is something we learned at a young age um, based on those circumstances at that time. But then later as adults where we have a general high level of competency in a lot of areas, um, there are things that we can do to sort of practice how do we grow that part of ourselves that was sort of stunted, I guess, when we were younger. Does that answer your question? Oh, definitely. I just think, Wow, like that, you know, when you were doing that um, 
that mindfulness-based um, therapy group with adult adoptees. This is in your towards the end of your uh, psychology training. Mm-hmm. I think I just think wow, that must it's just like such a a huge and fundamental thing to learn um, at an early point in your career that actually like often adoptees just have um, a, a difficult time. Yeah, identifying it and um, and allowing our own feelings. <laughs> I just think that's a, a really like huge piece. Yeah, I mean that came from my experiences in Korea too, and my own like personal journey and having somebody help me learn that as well, which came at a very like sort of unexpected time, and even myself not having that awareness that. I was not aware, not connected to, you know, for me in particular, it was just being angry or being allowed to have um, permission to be angry at my birth mother. It was very freeing to, um, to learn that about myself and to learn how to like have the emotion, how to um, express it, even in ways when you can't do it directly. A big part of, also sort of, I'll say my early training came from just meeting other adoptees and learning um, about their own experiences and their own ability to be open and vulnerable, you know, taught me also a lot and sort of motivated me to kind of take what I had learned to do. And I think some feedback that I got from different adoptees and community and other leaders that I worked with during my time in Korea was that in general, um, a lot of them felt like I least listened to them and however I responded to them or communicated or tried to support them, they, they felt like, I guess they felt listened to. And so I thought, well, <laughs> what do I do with this beyond what I already did in Korea? And I think a big question I had was like, oh, can I, can I hold emotional like mental space for other people's like issues and problems and how do I manage that without getting overwhelmed by everyone's stuff and in Korea that was very hard to do so the next section of questions sorry for about this like mammoth interview but um, for our next section, um, I think some of these questions are generally um, about dealing with suicide, um, not necessarily specific to the adoptee community, but we thought it would be, it was still important to include them. So firstly, I think generally there is a fear or perhaps um, a misconception that, you know, just talking about suicide at all will um, encourage it within a community. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned that there can be like a contagion effect. I mean, obviously, as podcasters, we want to be really responsible as well in um, initiating these conversations. So would you be able to kind of clarify that a little bit for us? Like, yeah, how we can ha- talk about this um, in a, a helpful way? Yeah, okay. So. So, um, 
So in terms of the contagion piece, a part of it is just more about, um, you know, maybe like overindulging in kind of the details of what happened, like glorifying those things. We don't want to do that. But what we do want to do, and I think what research shows is that if you're concerned about yourself or about somebody as possibly being suicidal, then it is best to be direct and actually ask them. Um, and I think that fear of if I ask, is that going to cause them to do something that they didn't already have in their mind? Um, and my understanding is the research, it says no. Um, it's really more about asking questions like, are you thinking about hurting yourself and being um, not beating around the bush and just asking? But I will say this is if it's difficult to know how to approach the subject here in Minnesota, we coordinated with the National Alliance on Mental Illness on a number of occasions to coordinate suicide prevention trainings for non like therapists, like community leaders. Um, and we call, I think they're called like gatekeepers. So I would recommend if you're not a therapist to look at some available suicide prevention trainings. I also think it doesn't hurt to call the adult adoptee um, organizations in your country or state here in Minnesota and then also in the U.S. There are a number of different directories to look up for like adoption competent therapists, but I think when it comes to suicide and if there's immediate crisis, you'd probably want to go to um, some kind of emergency line or go to the hospital um, and get some immediate help rather than trying to call an outpatient therapist who you might not get and you might get put on a waiting list. I think the, the, the thing is where you would hesitate, um, you know, like validate that it's scary or validate that you might not know. Um, but if there seems to be some big shift or big change or you're worried, the best advice is to be really direct and ask them. Yeah. That alone is not going to cause them to think something that they're not already thinking. So that is more of a myth. Um, that's not going to push them like over the edge. If anything, uh, it gives them permission to say they're struggling or to say that they need help. We were interested on on both the individual interpersonal level, like yes, say if we did know an adoptee or anyone really in our in our circle that we were worried about, like, yeah, would initiating that conversation be be a negative thing, but also on a community level, I guess, because this is a topic and a personal experience for, for some that um, comes up very sadly all too often. And as a community, how do we have mm -hmm. that discussion and how do we initiate and I guess normalize um, discussions about grief, discussions about the impacts of deaths by suicide? How do we support each other? in the aftermath of that. So I guess our question was kind of multi, multi-level mm -hmm. too. Um, to your question about how do we as a community 
address this or talk about this. I think the what I wrote down in my notes was I really would recommend that that you do reach out for some support from a professional, from a psychologist or a mental health therapist. And frankly, because you know we have some training and that's part of our job. Um, some therapists are not as comfortable. They probably tend to work with higher functioning clients where it's not a frequent topic that comes up or it's a frequent concern. Um, because I primarily do dialectical behavioral therapy, which was originally created for a population that had a high risk of self-harm or suicide attempts. I, I kind of deal with it on a regular basis and I have to ask questions about commitment to safety and most of my clients, not all, but some write out a formal safety plan, which includes them identifying what are typical events that will cause them to maybe have suicidal thoughts or self-harming behaviors, and then what are things that they can actively do if they got into that headspace, as well as identify supports that they would reach out to, including hospital, um, emergency numbers, crisis text line, but also like therapists, friends, family. Um, so part of this, and I think from the community side, is really just knowing the resources and the referrals. And then also as a non-trained therapist, I mean, it's not your expertise exactly what to do, but I think in community, it's um, a lot of what adoptees already do is just maybe recognizing or knowing that your friend's um, behavior is different or it's changed and, um, you know, doing your best to actually say something to them like, Hey, I noticed that, you know, you haven't been calling me back or you seem to be different, you know, are you thinking about, and it, it sounds weird if you don't do this. I mean, I don't do this normally with friends and family, but to say, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? Like being really clear is much more helpful and for yourselves if you were to initiate a conversation like that it's also validating this is scary this is uncomfortable but maybe ahead of the conversation that you've also looked up some resources <laughs> like some therapists to call or say hey can i make a call with you would it be helpful if we called the national suicide prevention lifeline together Oh, the last thing I was going to say um, is um, conferences, right? Because I used to do conference directing and then, you know, being at um, the gatherings or being at um, like the con conference or um, other mental health and social work um, or adoption conferences, even just being in those spaces where community leaders and professionals are sharing their experiences so we can network to also know where to get that help or who has expertise um, can be such a great thing. And I know for us as adult adoptees, it's sometimes in those spaces where we start to connect to our community on a broader level, um, at least in some ways can diffuse a little bit of the responsibility if we feel overwhelmed by maybe one person's level of distress 
Um, we can also kind of ask in community, like, hey, do you, this, this person or this friend of mine is really struggling and I want to help, but I'm not really sure, like, what to do. I do think there's a wealth of knowledge in our community to try to at least find an answer. So that could be helpful. One other thing I want to add, because <laughs> the conferences are being canceled lately, is if it's um, in searching for a therapist, there's more wider availability these days for telehealth. I think some help is better than no help. And so even finding a therapist or a therapist in crisis that can provide you with more immediate safety and stability could be a stepping stone to then finding another therapist that could help you with the more um, sort of niche aspect of the adoption stuff on top of maybe other mental health things. So you, you mentioned earlier changes in behavior, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the typical warning signs that we can look out for in others. Some of those warning signs, as I mentioned, can um, be behavioral or they can be in like phrases or comments or also just observing someone's general sort of like mood. So these are some things that we can kind of look out for when we notice a behavior or the presence of like new behaviors. Um, and it's also helpful if we happen to know that um, this new or changed behavior is related to or came after someone experienced a painful event, a loss, or some other change. <clears throat> um, and it is more common that people who take their lives would exhibit one or more warning signs ahead of that um, behavior or that action in what they're saying or what they're doing. So the behaviors themselves, or let me kind of share a little bit more about what are some actual things that they might say if they're talking. So they might be directly talking about actually killing themselves. So that would be a very obvious um, warning sign. Um, if they're talking about feeling helpless or hopeless um, and really just no longer having a reason to live, um, they might be talking about being a burden to others, um, feeling trapped in a situation, or experiencing unbearable pain. Um, and even just like reading over this list, I can think about in our adoption experiences or like our returning to Korea experiences. Um, you know, we oftentimes like have these experiences in that process. Um, some of the behaviors that could be warning signs, um, again, especially if someone has also recently experienced a painful event loss or change is increased use of alcohol or drugs. If you notice that they're looking for a way to end their lives, such as researching online for methods, so in the work that I do, like we'll call that an agonist suicidal thought if they've looked up means to do it. Um, if you notice that someone's withdrawing from their usual activities or isolating more from friends or family, 
Um, if someone is sleeping too much or too little, um, if they suddenly started visiting or calling people to say goodbye, but you don't actually know like why they're leaving or they didn't know that they were leaving. Mm -hmm. Another one is giving away their possessions, especially like really important ones, like bequeathing their things aggression and acting out and then fatigue you know it, you might notice like some of these we might also just kind of um, associate with increased depression I would say um, if you are worried and you're seeing some of these things like you know listen to your gut um, and then mm -hmm. some of the warning signs and change oh go ahead no we're, we're oh no just just, just agreeing <laughs> to uh to listening to a gut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then other just kind of basic warning signs for mood, although these might just seem pretty like um, straightforward. Increase in depression or anxiety, noticing someone um, losing interest in their normal activities, um, and again, kind of withdrawing. Notice a big increase in irritability. Um, high humiliation or shame, um, increased agitation or anger. And then this one, and I think some people have seen this and noticed this, is seeing someone who has been suffering for a long time um, suddenly being really relieved or had like, sudden improvement. Um, and, you know, generally that's sort of linked to, you know, their solution in their head is, well, you know, relief is on its way because I'm, I'm not going to stick around anymore. So those are kind of the main warning signs. And I know, I think, Hannah, you had a question about, like, well, what if we don't have warning signs? I think the research out there typically says there are generally signs. We just might not notice them. And I do want to say, like, if we haven't noticed them and there hasn't been any obvious signs, I mean, we, we can't, I mean, sadly, we can't really do much if we aren't noticing those changes. Thank you, that was very comprehensive. Um, I think that would be useful for people. Um, I think this is uh, something that we also already touched on, but um, so because these days, uh, you know, with social media and things. And um, so when an adoptee suicide happens, um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we often hear about it, whether we knew that person personally or not. And I think mm -hmm. it creates this kind of emotional ripple effect uh, throughout the community. And so we were wondering... Um, for the uh, survivors who, you know, who usually I think ex we experience like a lot of feelings around adoptee suicide, feelings of, yeah, helplessness and hopelessness, anger, frustration, maybe maybe guilt that, um, that we didn't somehow do something to prevent this. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we can attempt again, I guess, just to, to sit with and manage these feelings and how we may be able to process this grief um, collectively 
again, I think I find yeah. that, like in my experience, it's just a, it's quite an awkward kind of conversation to have with each other because we know that um, mm -hmm. it's deeply affecting, but we also don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do want to be mindful that everyone sort of experiences grief in different ways. So um, one thing that we can do is, you know, first and foremost, be aware and kind of respectful of whatever that looks like. <clears throat> um, but kind of going back to also tuning into ourselves and listening to what is it that we personally need or feel like doing. Um, so I kind of have this note here about moving through the grief at your own pace um, and noticing that that may be faster or slower, just different than how someone else wants to process that. I think in adopting community, there's a lot of strength. And at the same time, sometimes the the judgments that we can have about how different people behave in relation to the same event um, can sometimes sort of unexpectedly or in an unintentional way kind of negatively impact um, our interactions with each other. So, I mean, having some general respect for loss and grief is different for anyone anyway. Um, and then our own cultures, our adoptive families' cultures and our adoptive um, countries' cultures have different socialized norms on what that looks like. Some other suggestions would be, again, you know, considering if you already have access to professional help with an individual therapist, that could be helpful at that time. Obviously, talking to family and friends, um, if they're available, is a good um, idea. We could also seek out specific support groups for us lost by suicide. Um, here in the U.S. or even here in Minnesota, I know people have accessed support groups through that National Alliance on Mental Illness um, and the American Foundation on Suicide Prevention. They have them locally. We also have a Center for Grief and Loss that has individual and kind of support groups. Um, writing and journaling sort of on our own or finding other ways. You know, it doesn't always have to be obviously about talking. A lot of people are artists and do a lot of creating in other ways. So doing your art or creating, whether that's like visual art, music, performance, dance. Um, I also have down here our own self-care. Um, just like any time we experience difficult change, I think it's a really good time, and hopefully some of us are doing this now, um, being, you know, kind of stuck in different ways with the pandemic, but finding a way to take care of ourselves and to be really kind and caring and loving and gentle with ourselves. Uh, may not seem like the thing we should do because we're shocked and 
in pain and sad and angry about some other adoptee or adoptee friend dying by suicide. Um, but I think, you know, that range of emotions that you just mentioned, Hannah, especially like maybe guilt or survivor survivor's guilt, it can be a nice place for us to pause and also have control over something that's good for her, for us. And that will help us also process whatever emotions come up with that loss. I also have a note here about just asking for help. So if we are unsure um, and we need to connect to others, and maybe that's just like asking a friend um, or somebody to, you know, have a right now, I guess, <laughs> chat or have a Zoom session. Um, if you can get together with somebody or a phone call, um, just finding someone to listen. I think a big thing in Korea and in our community is activism. Some of that comes with, you know, what I saw sort of from afar when Philip Clay died by suicide in Korea was um, some of the news articles some of the pushes for post-adoption support or mental health support, you know, pertaining specifically to the U.S. is still this unresolved issue about the Adoptee Citizenship Act and all the adoptees like him who haven't gotten their citizenship because of it being overlooked or abusive situations with families. Um, I mean, so that's something in our community that in general we're pretty good at. The last thing I had was I did find online some trainings about what in suicide it's called postvention. So kind of after the fact, if somebody's taken life, um, there's some trainings, um, postvention, or this one called Connect Postvention is a half-day training. And then there's another one called Survivor Voices, which is a two-day training um, that can give more specific information about how to spread awareness. And also um, in the Survivor Voices training, uh, people who are survivors or family members um, we'll also kind of talk about what that process looks like it, or could look like once somebody um, does die by suicide and, you know, kind of working through all the coulda, shoulda, would've. Um, one thing that I really liked about that that I saw online was any of the survivors that actually talk about what their experience and journey has been like it says that you have to wait at least two years following the death of like a loved one um, to give you yourself some time for healing. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I here uh, in Minnesota have talked with a family member in the last year. Um, and I know they did some activism and did a benefit concert. Um, and I think that they're still kind of in that process too, because it, you know, has not been that long. Um, and it is a very raw experience. And I think going back to that self-care piece is also really important that 
in order for us to be available and sort of effective and healthy in whatever message we want to share with others is um, taking that time to do our own, I want to say healing, but um, not to say like two years is a magic number, but at least have kind of been able to work through maybe the, the roughest parts of that, that post sort of aftermath um, loss. So those are just some suggestions. I had a question, but I'm not sure um, if it's particularly relevant. But maybe maybe I'll just ask it and, and see what you and see what you think. But um, sure, it's a more general question about the kind of terminology and the vocabulary that we use when we talk about suicide. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess it was, you know, terms like strength and resilience or selfishness, right? These are terms that um, I really like can be quite judgmental. Um, and I wonder if they create in themselves barriers, uh, to having more open conversations or, um, if they kind of contribute to the, to the taboo nature of the topic. I wondered if, um, you had any thoughts on how we have these conversations while steering clear of that kind of judgmental, more like moral vocabulary? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question and sort of a, a helpful observation. Um, definitely with different trainings on the prevention and awareness. Generally, it's not about like a flawed character or a lack of strength. Um, or that term of selfishness, um, it's it's really more about, you know, somebody finding themselves in a in a difficult or a sort of a dark space where they don't have um, you know, whether it's actual like relationships or people in their life supports or they don't have knowledge or resource in terms of like problem solving a difficult situation. I know for Philip Clay, one of the things that I had read was that he also had, um, you know, some mental health diagnoses for which medication was recommended. Um, And so a big piece is if somebody is prescribed medications for their mental health. Um, I am a supporter and a proponent that you would take those. Um, And if you happen to change what you're taking, that you do that under the guidance of a psychiatrist or your prescriber. You know, that's not my training, although a lot of people I work with um, on my client load have them. Um, I don't think that people should just take medicine and um, should take a lot, but I do see how it can be very helpful um, on a consistent basis if it's difficult for someone to function well regularly without it. So it's more about understanding that someone is in a difficult place without resources and without, you know, skills or access to problem solving. And 
Um, I know, and I forget his name, that there was a Norwegian adoptee um, who was found dead in Korea in like a Goshitel or something like that. Um, I, I can't remember if it was, you know, ruled like a suicide or just kind of like, you know, kind of a, a long decline um, to that space. I have several friends and this was kind of my interest in working in the project with CAM Center um, here in Minnesota. So as I mentioned in the beginning, I went to all these camps for Korean adoptees when I was young and they were very helpful and important and special for me. But I have several friends who, you know, I think more into our 20s that ended up dying by suicide and um you know, a couple of them, their their parents were part of the founding sort of members of these camps. And so I was also kind of curious as to, you know, what happened or why, why would they, I guess, why, what happened to kind of lead them to ending their life that way when in some ways, I think what their families try to do was give them the support that they thought they needed. Um, getting back to your question, what's more important is not, you know, the blame about, about someone who is either attempted or someone who actually has completed and died by the suicide. Um, I think as addressing or assessing uh or putting blame on somebody for it being like a character flaw. I mean, it's more of an attempt to try to quickly make sense of a very difficult situation. And so if there was a memorial or if there was like some kind of um, gathering to share or discuss what happened, um, or, you know, if somebody has survived um, the attempt and it would be more about us showing up to say, how can we help? How can we support? How do we show care and love? Um, because I think all of us have been in a place where we feel alone or we feel afraid or we feel confused. Um, maybe not to the extent that our mind would go to suicide, um, however, if we've ever been in that place before, it's also just, you know, having some deep empathy or sympathy that it's a very dark and scary place to be in. And, you know, our role, hopefully, as a friend or as a community person is not to judge. It's more about, you know, how can we help you? And if the roles were reversed and I was in the same a scary dark place where do I know that I can go to to get some support um, and I think in general like our community can you know at least parts of it can come together and do that quite well although I also know other parts of our community is not as capable um, they might just appear as either disinterested or like you said as judgmental um, and so I guess I would say steer away from those folks and move to those that are actually, you know, like showing some 
concern and interest to try to find you help or if you are a therapist or somebody you know try to offer that yeah because yeah you know thinking back I've definitely heard you know some pretty judgmental comments about people in the past and I don't know I guess just look for the sympathizers (laughs) yeah and I and I guess you know this is based off personal observations and also I'm getting older so maybe this is part of it too but and thus the people I'm around are older (laughs) but um I, I also wonder if there's also just been a general shift you know in my lifetime between the way that we talk about suicide, just even really, really broadly, not within the adoptee community, yeah. um, that, that it, it is, it is talked about using different terms and, and in, in a different light than it might've been when, you know, when I was a teenager, when I think I was hearing much more of that kind of, especially after a death by suicide, those kinds of judgments, um, yeah. And that kind of value-laden vocabulary. But but yeah, now yeah, I I I think that society has hopefully moved in a kinder, more empathetic direction. Well, I think having access to um more immediate help, um, having internet, having smartphones, having you know, things that we can even look up online is just so different. And really a big piece is just being able to talk about it, right? Because it's scary when we don't know what's happening or how to help. And so when we feel out of control or out of our comfort zone, it's easier to sort of deflect or assign blame Um, But it really doesn't help the situation. Um, And I, and I agree. And I think, you know, we've learned more and more um, about the factors that go into um, someone attempting suicide. And we just know it's not just like weak people would do that. Like, we've been devastated when people that we also look up to or, you know, whether we ourselves have even just had thoughts. And I think, as you mentioned, Ryan, just sometimes with age and having more experiences in life, like we are less quick to judgment because, you know, we have more experience to draw from. And I don't know, like one thing I guess I didn't talk about, and I don't know if you guys asked this, a limitation in the questionnaire and kind of our findings with the suicide uh, behaviors is um, a couple, the two like sort of main studies that had looked at suicide attempts and completed um, deaths that came from Sweden in 2002. And then here in Minnesota, I think it's 20, 2010 or 2013. Um, one of so they were also looking at um, I think more sort of adolescent, maybe into young adult age adoptees, and um, we did not ask in our survey at what age did you attempt suicide, or at what age were you having those suicidal thoughts or behaviors. And so um, we were kind of curious to see, because I think we saw, we said as a protective factor that um, adoptees in their 40s 
um, seemed to fare better. And so one of the hypotheses we had was, is this also somewhat attributable to that more tumultuous stage of life of adolescence and sort of early adulthood, which is a struggle for, you know, everyone. And that if you can kind of make it through like those more difficult years and sort of hang in there, right. Is that something that is also, you know, becomes more of a resilience factor later. So I kind of wanted to mention that piece. Any final thoughts? You know, one of the things that we were looking at here um, was how do we tailor a little bit of the interventions and the postvention piece towards adopted communities specifically? Um, you know, and it's still sort of a question that we're in progress um, kind of figuring out. We did noticed based on sort of our shared anecdotal information is this big piece about not talking about it um both the before and the after the after the fact for adoptees and adoptive families um because there are also these like adoptee and sort of cultural pieces that impact maybe the why it happened, and then also what to do or how to go about it later. The pastor I work with, Pastor Central Park, one of his observations was wanting to reach out and talk to and help some of the grieving um, adoptive parents after an adoptee died by suicide, but struggling to kind of figure out, well, what's the line of respecting their own privacy and autonomy to make those decisions about how to seek help. And maybe it's more of a, you know, piece that requires some further input or further investigation. Um, I think it's more of a question. And I think in Korea, and maybe you guys can speak to this, and in adult adoptee community, I know one way that we also connect or grieve is through social media. You know, sometimes that's just posting about it, like on our Facebook page. Um, There is a Facebook group called something like Korean adopting memorial page. Do you guys know about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even that, you know, it can, can be a really helpful thing um, just to, it, you know, it might not be activism, but it just might be a place to commemorate or recognize that, you know, this person, even if we have never knew them, they lived and, you know, they, they're part of our community. Um, and I think for those that are part of that page or the, the founders of that page, you know, I think are deeply concerned or wanting to just acknowledge and recognize that you know this person lived (laughs) you know whether they were an active part of community or not I know as part of um, being in this project one of the things that we're looking at or why we're doing it is as I mentioned the 
prevention and postvention support, but ultimately it's also like reducing and preventing adoptee suicide, um, which kind of speaks to, you know, my previous work as just a community le leader and someone who contributed to community development and, you know, creating spaces for adoptees to meet each other and, you know, starting to create more and more opportunity and space for us to not feel like we're alone um, and for us to hear from others that have similar experiences so that, you know, we don't feel like we're strange or that there's something wrong with us or that it's okay that you can, you know, appreciate parts of your life as an adopted person and also have, you know, some sadness or be really angry. Um, and I think that's also I, maybe a kind of a closing thing that I want to talk about is just adopting mental health and suicide prevention and community really has been about, and for me, like creating inclusive spaces where our experience um, isn't right or wrong. It's just a part of um, what makes us who we are. And I think sometimes when people are new in adoptee spaces, um, just like any new situation, it's easy to come in and feel sort of like nervous and be on the defense and want to somehow prove that you're healthy, that you're okay, or that you're actually like high performing. Because, you know, being vulnerable and showing, I guess, what historically could be looked at as weaknesses, you know, sets us up for kind of negative interactions. But at the same time, if we just show up in adoptee space and only pretend that everything's okay, when it might not be also then kind of stifles some of the connection and the healing that we can get from being in the community. So I, I think a big part of the suicide prevention comes from us just being able to respect and have space for everyone's experience and to have a referral and kind of know maybe when to try to get a little more help for some individuals um, and then also say that that's okay. Um, and then we ourselves, even if we're used to being competent, if we're used to being like a leader or I guess, yeah, going back to competence, it, it's, it's okay. It's also okay that sometimes, you know, you're going to have certain experiences, new life changes that you're not prepared for. Um, and that's that's sort of another thing that I noticed with each sort of milestone or different life change that we as adoptees like go through. And this comes more from sort of the developmental piece and clinical piece is just knowing that there is a potential for previous trauma or previous difficult experiences to sort of open up um, those old wounds that maybe haven't been tended to and that that's okay. Um, but just being able to know that there is some help 
um, and knowing where to look for it or how to start looking for it will help a lot in preventing us from going to those more dire, scary places that would lead to suicide. Thank you so much, Nicole. You're an amazing resource, I think, for our community um, and such a wealth of knowledge and experience. Um, Thank you. I mean, and thank you for all the the ongoing work that you've been doing now for for decades. Um, Yeah, I'm definitely taking a little, a a lot more, less kind of leadership role. Um, One thing I've been really trying to work on or figure out the last few years is how do I be a part of community, but also um, have like privacy and confidentiality in my space as a therapist so that people can actually, you know, want to, I think, work with me as a clinician, if that, if that makes sense. Because in the past, like, I mean, and it's been quite a while because it's been like 10 years since I was like in a leadership position in community and like active leadership, but realizing like, I just have a different role now um, and and trying to navigate that because oftentimes in community, um, we can wear multiple hats um, and, and it's really important to provide a confidential space. So I'm working on it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trying to to figure out how do I still find a way to be a community member and, and contribute where I can. This episode is part of our Adoptee Suicide Awareness Series dedicated to a special member of our community who died by suicide last year. Nicole has kindly provided details of some suicide prevention training programs, crisis lines, and other important resources. You can find these listed on our website at tinyurl.com forward slash AF support. Special thanks to Nicole, Miju Kim, Jaron Kim, Linnell Long, and M. McKenna for their support in getting this special series off the ground. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And we also have a Patreon. If you'd like to further support us, um, head to patreon.com forward slash adopted fields. <laughs>